Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends, taste, brands, and products. Before we jump in, I'm going to do this at the beginning of the show because I always tend to forget about that. But, you know, I just sort of remind y'all, if you haven't done so already, make sure you give us a star rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you're having trouble finding that link, because, you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to find us, uh, mm-hmm. which I've been I've been informed. Thank you very much for telling yeah, me. Yeah, seriously. And I'm thanks, gonna, guys. Yeah, I'm <laughs> going to try to figure out a way to increase our SEO rankings. Mm-hmm. And I think it just also is just the more we, you know, we update and, and have more podcasts and the more followers we get, the the higher we'll rank. So, you know, that's why we, def- we definitely need you to give us some star ratings. But you can also get the link on our website, which is thedepartment.world. And you can just link to, you know, it has all the Apple there. And But that's where you can do the star rating. You can leave us a nice review. We'll, we will definitely post it on our Instagram. And thank you a million times over. We really, really appreciate it. You know, you can also make sure to follow us on Instagram. It's at underscore the underscore department. And we post lots of really great content. And, you know, just make sure to to save the content. It really also helps us, you know, get really great appearance. Um, you know, comment, like, share, you know, it's, it just helps us get out there. And we really, really appreciate anything you do to help us grow. Um, so anyway, I'm going to jump right in and welcome to episode 16. So this episode is all about the trending concept of bland brands and the blandification of brand identity amongst so many of these like disruptor brands on the market. But before we dive into that, I just wanted to do a little icebreaker with Amanda and, you know, just kind of see how she is preparing for Thanksgiving and if there's any traditions that you're going to partake in or pivot because of the pandemic. Well, so... You know, I uh, listen to a lot of NPR all the time and it kind of all runs together for me. And I especially listen to it really early in the morning when I'm kind of half asleep. And Oh, wait, can I just can I just ask you one thing? uh, Is it now easier to listen to NPR because when because Trump has been voted out? Because (laughs) I find it way. Oh, my God, for sure. For sure. I mean, it's still not good news most of the time. But I agree. I feel my anxiety level is half it's as better. much as it mm-hmm. was, which is crazy knowing that like everything else that's going on in the world. But anyway, mm-hmm. so either yesterday or this morning, once again, half asleep, I have no idea. I can remember the sense of being in my pajamas. That's about as far as it goes. Um, <laughs> I listened to a woman talk about how she thinks it's really important for people to still do some cooking for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like – I'm obviously not going to see my family. Uh, I'm not even going to see Dylan because I'm too nervous about us contaminating one another since we don't mm-hmm. live in the same house anymore. Your daughter, right? My Dylan, daughter, daughter, right, yeah. right. Yeah, because she, she's got her own know. place now. So we're mm-hmm. technically not in the same household. Mm-hmm. I, we had talked about her getting a COVID test to come over, but the reality is that it's, just, it's like impossible to get a test in Pennsylvania right now. So I had been kind of like for the past few days sort of like, well – what am I going to do for Thanksgiving? Like, 
I guess I'll just work on the podcast all day. But you know what I've decided? I think it's still a nice day to do nice things for yourself. Yeah. So I like this idea of cooking something and I'm thinking I might make like a really elaborate charcuterie platter. Mm. And I also might make ambrosia salad, which I mean, Kim, you must be familiar with from the Midwest. Definitely. Uh, It's like one of my favorite like old from my family kind of treats to have. And you know what? I'm going to set the table. Maybe it'll just be the coffee table. Wait, what kind of what kind of fruit do you put in your ambrosia? Oh, so I do not go classic canned fruit as I was raised. Thank God. I I know. I like to here's what I like to do. Quick recipe tip from Amanda. Mm-hmm. Some fresh mandarin oranges, right? The little, fresh. The little not yeah, not like, the syrup. Syrup right, oranges. Right. Nary a can in here, okay? <laughs> uh, I like to get some nice pears and cut those up. Mm-hmm. Um I also will do some fresh pineapple. I like I like pineapple a lot, so I'm always mm-hmm. looking to put that in somewhere. I will possibly use some maraschino cherries from a jar because, like, you got to have the pink color. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. Al- I also put in, you know, coconut, and my secret ingredient is walnuts. Shut and then up. You mix it all up with some sour cream. Mm-hmm. Oh, marshmallows! Marshmallows, as you know, my favorite, mm-hmm. my favorite treat. Mix it all up. <laughs> it's fun for all ages. <laughs> Wow. So I think I'm going to do something like that and like watch TV or read a book or play video games with Dustin. I mean, we never relax, even though we are just like house cats that live at home now. Mm -hmm. So I want it to still feel special. What about you? What are you doing? Wait, I still have one more question for you. Oh, okay. You have Mm -hmm. one more question. Okay. Will you be making Dustin some sort of like tofurkey situation? (laughs) Because that's what you, because we've spent Thanksgivings together and I. Yes. Yeah, see, I mean, like, I came to Portland once. You did, you did. And yeah. What was great about that is there was a whole bunch of us and only one vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So we yes. literally had the best turkey ever. Like, I don't want to pat myself mm-hmm. on the back too hard, but that turkey was incredible. <laughs> and then we made Dustin his tofurkey, right? And he ate that. But yeah. I don't know. I just like, the, I was like, do I want to make a whole traditional Thanksgiving meal, which would have to include some faux meat? And then I was like, I just don't know if I want that. Like, I love a cheese plate. A really elaborate yes. cheese plate is like my favorite meal. Yeah, so some like really, really nice artisanals that you can probably get, mm-hmm. right? Because you're out. Oh, out here for sure, for sure. There's an amazing grocery store. Uh, it's called Shady Maple, and it has so much local cheese local mm-hmm. pickled things, you know, local meats, all, all the stuff. Yeah. So I think we could have something really lovely and ambrosia. And you'll be su- supporting <laughs> your community too by, you know, per- purchasing totally, all these totally. amazing local local products. Totally. Because I was at the grocery store on Friday and I was like, I should get Thanksgiving stuff if we're about to mm-hmm. lock down. And I just, I, I got so sad. I thought I was going to cry at the grocery store because I was just like, I I don't want to cook this huge, ridiculous meal for just me and Dustin. And it felt kind of depressing. And I think we're all going through like stages of grief and then acceptance about how the holidays this year are just going to be a little different. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be okay. Yeah. I think it's going to be I mean, I know you're not going to – you're probably not going to see any of your family either, right? No, not at all. I know. My sister was like, hey, are you coming home home for Thanksgiving? I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) It's like, no. Exactly. Exactly. I'm like, I'm not coming home for Christmas either. I'm like, I'm sticking, staying put. So when I was at the grocery store 
you know, there's always that one person everywhere you go who's mm-hmm. talking way too loud mm-hmm. and way too long with some poor employee. Oh, God. Store, right? Yeah. Like, get <laughs> right? some perspective, buddy. Like, know your audience. So, so there's this woman, you know, just leaning against the deli case. Oh, like, God. Well, and then my aunt brings the blah, 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 and then I bring this. My cousin's going to bring this. Basically talking about this huge, huge, like 50-person Thanksgiving family meal they're having. And I just like wanted to go up and kick her in the crotch. <laughs> like you're the reason why we can't make this end. This is why we can't have nice yes, things. Exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, I know, listen, like I said, we're all going through like stages yeah. of accepting this. It's going to be okay. I think it's just, you know, I feel like I never just get to chill out. That feels like a treat. A whole year of chilling is like the best thing that's ever happened. (laughs) And I I just, I feel like people are sad and Mm -hmm. itchy for like going back to normal life. But you know what? Live it up while you can. Mm -hmm. Because when normal life, life, whatever that even means, comes back, you're never going to be home again. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's going to all start up again. And you're going to be just, you know, dreaming about those days where you kind of had to stay home. And there was no excuse. There was all these excuses that you had, you know, to not go anywhere. Yeah, I always think about that. I'm just like, man, I'm going to miss these times. Um, I know, because I feel like we're going to be really, really forced to go out and hang out. mm -hmm. Like, we're not going to be able to be like, Oh, Mm -hmm. I'm tired. Oh, I have a headache. I'm busy. Like, people are going to make us. So Jomo, live it up. Jomo. Especially you, especially you introverts. Yeah, Jomo. Uh, well, you know, Turkey is super traditional. You know, um, I'm spending the Thanksgiving with Neil. My um, We haven't DTR'd, so I, you know. Um, <laughs> significant so wait, other. Are you guys going to have it? Are yeah. you going to have like some turkey situation? No, I don't really like turkey. Um, I've never been a big fan of turkey. I grew up eating turkey most Sundays because my father loves turkey and he was the chef of the house. Yeah. So he made a turkey dinner, like a Thanksgiving dinner constantly. I just, I, even when I was a kid, I was like, I don't get it. What's the hype about turkey? I'm always going to pick ham. Ham? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm a ham person. Um, actually, Proud ham person over here. What? No, I no, I don't like either of them. I guess I'm a really picky traditional holiday eater. Um, Are you going to cook a meal though? Yes. Oh, oh my gosh, yes. You know, I mean, as you know, I'm a bit of a food hoarder. Um, and I am mm-hmm. also kind of one of these new hedonists, they're called, which is just someone who really likes... <laughs> likes food and really like we'll spend money on really good food and ingredients and like Mm -hmm. heritage food and things like that. And um, I've been, I actually have been really obsessed with chicken over the past few years and like making it really well because it could be done so mundanely and really boring. But if you've ever had a brick chicken from like a Brooklyn restaurant, you, you know how delicious they are. And I have been getting food from imperfect foods, you know, which is one of those great, you know, circular, more sustainable um, food waste um, delivery services. And they offer these spatchcock heritage breed chickens. So that's already been 
pot, which means that the, the, the backbone's basically been taken out. And then you put it in like a big cast iron pan and you kind of like, you fry it with um, really heavy weights on top of it, essentially bricks. Okay. I was wondering where the brick was coming into play here. I was imagining yeah, that the brick was stuffed inside the chicken for no apparent reason. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just, it creates this amazing crust. It's so delicious and tender and juicy and incredible. Oh, you make a pan sauce also with like butter and white wine and it's just phenomenal. But I also am getting these, this heirloom chicken and I'm going to think about buttermilk brining it. And I'm, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm just going to do a bunch of different chickens in the next couple of weeks. And it doesn't really matter if it falls on a Thanksgiving or not. I just, one of those, I just like to, to cook really, you know, delicious interesting meals uh it's just kind of something i like to do you know this one's just it has has like a little bit more of a story to it so it's like okay i guess i need to do a bird for this day but i won't do a turkey because <laughs> i think turkeys are gross um i'm also making like a pumpkin pie and i've had that history nice. of making really great like we take a real pumpkin and you you make the pumpkin and instead of out of a canned pumpkin you take a sugar pumpkin and you roast the sugar pumpkin and you use that um mm. so i'm doing yeah, lots of that stuff. Um, I've been listening to that podcast, Home Cooking. Mm, it's yeah. a semine from Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, you know, has this really great mm -hmm. podcast about home cooking that she came out with. I'm sure you know, a lot of you have probably listened to it. It's fantastic. You know, it, it kind of came out during the, the beginning of the pandemic when people were all stuck at home cooking and they didn't know what to do and they had so many questions. So she just launched this podcast and just basically answers people's questions. And so she's been talk talking all about Thanksgiving and that's where the buttermilk brining comes in because this is what she recommended um, for a turkey, but her most popular uh, recipe apparently is this chicken that's been buttermilk brined and then roasted. So that's my jam. I mean, mashed potatoes mm. and gravy are kind of the only reason I like Thanksgiving. So I'll go there too. <laughs> <laughs> I can just eat, have a whole plate of it. It's like my favorite thing. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds really uh, good. Yeah. It's really, really yeah. nice. But most importantly, you're going to stay home. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely staying home. I'm very excited to have um, this time to stay home, you know, we'll have, you know, it's like a four day weekend. It's also like black Friday, you know, and I, I work for Graflance and we have a big, big promotion coming up and, um, you know, it's just a very exciting time for us. And, um, yeah, cool. that's, that's kind of what's happening. That's the jam over here. Um, <laughs> so I guess I will jump into our discussion about plans. Yeah, let's do it. So in September of this year, Bloomberg came out with this kind of disruptor of an article by Ben Schott titled, Welcome to Your Bland New World. Why do disruptive startups slavishly follow an identical formula of business model, look and feel and tone of voice? Because it works, sort of. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, and this really piqued the ears of most everyone in the industry. And it became a super buzzy conversation piece and just word in general. So that's right. Replacing the word brand with the word bland. <laughs> and I mean, in, 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 its, in its essence, it's actually really funny. And I think that's kind of why it, it created such a buzz. And they do have some really great and really obvious points about the blindification of the market mm -hmm. with formulaic sans serif font driven branding and identity that follows in the footsteps of the all hail Warby Parker. <laughs> in fact, so many of these brands, when they're being pitched to VCs, 
are pitched as the Warby Parker of X. Um, So the claim is that Blands rise out of a disruption or domination of a niche with the fuel of VC, which is, you know, venture capital funding and VC investors are drawn to bland brands. And, you know, Bloomberg gives examples of basically all the big ones that you see everywhere. Casper, Away, Allbirds, Quip, Harry's, Oscar, Everlane, WeWork, Outdoor Voices, Glossier. So quite a few are listed. There's way more that I, I I don't want to, you know, just list off everything. They also have some, they also have some that I'm like, is it a bland? I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, and the article breaks down all the pieces, mission, values, naming, logo, tone, et cetera. Um, and all of the themes that go into developing each of these brands. And I just want to make a few points here though. You know, obviously this is a, uh, a journalist who doesn't really work in the industry, you know, who definitely follows, you know, brands and, and, and political things, you know, if you look at what he's written about, but he's never obviously, you know, worked in the industry. So, so his perspective is really, you know, exterior. Um, But obviously ours is more interior, so we can give a little bit more nuance to this story. So for all the recent buzz, this actually isn't a really new concept. Did you know that there was an article in 2018? That's right, Amanda. That 2018 <laughs> that we talk about in all of our episodes, that's kind of a pivot point for so many things. Well, in 2018, Fast Company had an article, and you guessed it, named Blands, um, <laughs> and with a more simplified co- commentary on the visual identity, like logo and voice, which I totally agree with. They didn't go deep into um, all of like the uh, the mission and values and all of those things. It was really a very, you know, exterior perspective on it. And it was called, the title was the hottest branding trend of the year is also the worst is your made up name rendered in sans serif type with this much white space. Congratulations. You're a bland. (laughs) And so they really started their original discussion of blands. Um, and then, you know, co- you know, fast forward a couple of years, then this article comes out. It's got way more, um, you know, more written about it. They bring it, talk about way more brands. I think more brands came into play too. Um, you know, so this was co-written by Thierry Brunfout and Tom Greenwood. And that article goes on to say, the worst branding trend of 2018 is the one you probably never noticed. I call it blanding. The main offenders are in tech, where a new army of clones wears a uniform of brand camouflage. The formula is sort of a brand paint by numbers. Start with a made up word name, put it in a sans serif typeface, make it clean and readable with just the right amount of white space. Use a direct tone of voice. Nope, no need for a logo. Maybe throw in some cheerful illustrations. Just don't forget the vibrant colors. Bonus points for purple and turquoise. Blah, blah, blah. And I do mean blah. So that's like a little, <laughs> it's a little tidbit. And, you know, I, I kind of think that that this direct article actually describes the blandification a little bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'll kind of, I'll kind of go into this in a second. Number two on the things I kind of wanted to bring up is I think that VCs are and were drawn to bland brands because minimalism has been at the peak of design and aspiration for well over 10 years now. Oh, for sure. For sure. It feels safe, you know? 
it's safe, it's clean, it's cool, it's what all the cool kids have been doing, you know. And you know, if if Warby Parker started with with being a bland brand, you know, all the other bland brands are going to want to be a bland brand. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense. So not only that, many of the super popular brands or blands are the ones that are being used as a reference point. Um, were, were developed during the millennial minimalism movement, which I like to call it. And that was actually really new, you know, like 10 to 12 years ago, like that movement when, when, when minimalism and kind of bland looking generic things were making a comeback. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, that was particularly interesting and cool to uh, up and coming demographic millennials um, and Amanda's going to get a little bit more into that minimalism um, origination, but, you know, just stay with me here. Um, so we're currently in the beginning stages of, of a move towards some maximalism as, you know, Gen Zers are kind of coming up into the ranks and they're rebelling against that minimal look. So we'll, we might see some movement away from that sort of snoring minimal trend. Um, and Number three on my little notes is, so as someone who's just been through a whole branding process for a brand new brand that I will tell you about once we launch, um, and working with an agency developing a brand and identity, I have some industry thoughts to point out. And Amanda, I'm sure you actually have some too. So make sure to jump in if I'm, you know, if you, Mm -hmm. if you got a comment. So for starters, a company generally goes to a branding agency to develop the entirety of their brand full package, which is oftentimes why you get these carbon coffees. Um, Oftentimes it's the same people that develop the identikit for one major brand also develop the identikit for another (sighs) name, logo, typeface, mission, voice, all of it. And they're actually all the same agencies. So these agencies have a formulaic approach that is based on best practices and successes, which have developed over years of trial and error, and they're passed down from associate to associate. So it is an extremely detailed and extremely organized evolution that checks all of the boxes, dots all the I's and crosses all the T's. And it takes months or years even, and multiple phases with consumer research and industry knowledge to assure a well-evolved brand that resonates with its customer. So I did a little bit more digging, a little more research about this, and I found out that's basically just three branding groups backed by a small group of VC firms that have launched most of these brands that we see everywhere. Harry's, Keeps, Glossier, Allbirds, Hymns, Everland, Casper, Otherland, um, Burrow, Flamingo, Recess, etc. The three branding groups are called Gin Lane, Red Antler, and Partners in Spade. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and it's just a small group of in- insiders just doing these blands. Uh, and sometimes brands work with multiple of these agencies. So they kind of all, you know, you know, they mix all together Um Uh, The article that I read about this goes on to say that brands have an aesthetic that appeals to millennials, smart design without being ostentatious or too snooty. All these products are stylish and they don't necessarily pick up on the cues of the category. They, They pick up on the design language that surrounds young people today. You know, and that was young people was millennials who are now not necessarily young anymore. Yeah. Yeah. um, yeah. (laughs) So, so one man's bland is another's cash cow, essentially. 
Um, these agencies can turn a brand into a household name overnight, you know? So millennials love the look of this, but Gen Z is not so much. So I believe next in the next two years, you know, we're going to start seeing a shift that will start ap- appealing more to Gen Z as Gen Z holds more power. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and this like blendification, it will start of start, start, start going out of style a little, little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I digress a little bit. So jumping back forward to 2020, when this Bloomberg article came out this year, uh, I was kind of like, oh my God, this is like such a, an original thought. I mean, I shared it with you, Amanda, and you were like, oh, blah, 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 plans. How fascinating. Um, and yeah, these bland, these brands are actually kind of bland when you look at them. Uh, I, you know, I think this article makes some really great points and it really stirred a few of the pots that actually kind of needed a few stirring and like this conversation should start kind of bubbling up Mm -hmm. to to start getting some freshness. Um, You know, calling out those macro themes in brands that VCs are backing and how the look and feel is so carbon copy. But I do think the article is a bit one-sided, as I've said, and it does have some misses, as I've said. I think at some points, you know, after rereading it and rereading it, it's kind of just a really dramatic article. <laughs> I mean, I will say, like, you know, I live with a designer and mm-hmm. he's been pissed off about Blands for at least three years. I yeah. think when you work in that industry, you're mm-hmm. really tired of executing it. And like every yeah. client asks for that. Really? That I mean, that makes sense. That's where the money is. It's billions and billions of dollars are behind these brands. And like it costs so much money. The other thing that I've noticed being on the side of like we're working with a branding agency is that Mm -hmm. everybody asks the branding agency, who else have you branded, right? They list all these brands that you just mentioned, these blands. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, yeah, I want that too. And I feel like it's it's because – it's like a haircut. You're like, can I yeah. have the Jennifer Aniston? Totally, totally. And like, <laughs> I mean, imagine how embarrassed you would be to have that haircut right now. But like, I, know. <laughs> I assume that's what's going to happen with Blands. But mm-hmm. I think that people who maybe don't have a strong design aesthetic or aren't really mm-hmm. visual, you know, these are the people who are running these companies who are really up in like they're geniuses of finance and strategy and production and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But they don't have that design eye or like, oh, I know that that's what sells and that's what qualifies as good yes. taste right now and will make us seem relevant. So I think that's part of the problem. And VCs are just like, well, we know that these these looks are what sells. So we, if you have something that's a little bit off that in your like identicate, uh, we don't mm-hmm. we don't think that we we should support you yet because it's probably you know not gonna appeal to the the audience that you know that that it appeals to with all these other brands like it makes sense mm-hmm. it um, does it does i will tell you as you know i did a like a pitchathon yes, a competition thing for a startup project that i'm working on and all of the other brands fell into all of this yes oh my god that must be <laughs> like, so hilarious it was so hilarious like the font the names which i know you're going to go into mm-hmm. the types of names that Blands tend to adopt. They all checked one of these boxes. Um, the color palettes or lack thereof. So much Helvetica. So, so much Futura. <laughs> I mean, everything was 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 sans serif, and yeah. it was just like to me, it felt so dated. Yeah. You know, because I'm like more in that like creative realm where I'm like, guys, yeah, you're. I personally now have reached this point, and I don't know what you think of this, Kim. 
where you want a brand's logo and branding to reflect who they are. Yes. Not just this like, like there were so many pitches that I saw on Friday where I was like, I literally have no idea what this person's going to be selling based on the name or logo. What are they, what's their, (laughs) like it was like a surprise every Mm -hmm. single time. That's hilarious. Was the, the one that you're pitching, did they have a name and a logo similar to this or did they kind of go outside the box? Oh, no, we went outside the box. Our, cool. We have actually really, really good branding, and it's really based on like sort of like vintage grocery store kind of art. It's not it's not dissimilar to what I'm going to talk about later, but it's a totally different font and a better feel, and it's very Pacific Northwest. So we were the only people whose name and logo kind of implied what we did. That's so cool. <laughs> I want you to send me something. I'm so curious. Yeah, I, I, w- I will. Very exciting. Um, you know, and, and yeah, like I said, I'll be able to share um, the the brand that I'm working on as well. That At first, when this article came out, I like I sent it to some of the people on my team. I'm like, is this a bland? Are, are we making a bland? And they're like, no, this is, we're not making a bland. Like we're working with like this really, really cool branding agency made of, of like Gen Zers. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it follows a lot of the formula, but the branding itself is really cool, modern, you know, it's a fresh kind of mix up and, you know, definitely a departure. Um, anyway, so going back to this article, you know, I do think it delivers an enticing and a really funny message that kind of appeals to people. Um, also kind of like, you know, that like a little bit negative, you know, people sometimes just like, like a little, neg- they want to hear a little negative stuff, you know, like, mm-hmm. like negative. They do. They do. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's snarky. Snarky, you know, and I think at times it actually devolves in and at, okay. It, like <laughs> it basically it takes, um, all elements of brand identity and development and just like really smugly negs this anti-consumerism propaganda to just destroy any of the brands, you know, mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, well, okay. So every, so essentially every brand is, could just be destroyed apparently under all of the, the, the contexts that you're listing out here. Um, <laughs> And it's just, yeah, it basically just, just tears down any sort of VC back brand, which I personally, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this in a, in a little bit. Like, I, I think that there's a lot of value in a lot of these brands and, <laughs> and, and, you know, saying that if someone has a mission or values and that's like a bland thing, I'm like, that's not a bland thing. No, <laughs> like, I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I can see why you might get that confused because mm-hmm. I think this idea of a company having a mission or values, which to be fair is always a bunch of nonsense, mm-hmm. but that just happened to also come up in the same era as blanding. Yes. I don't think that they're connected. They're just parallel to one another, you know? It's, it, but it's so necessary to have yeah, the, it is. missions and values and pillars of your brand identified and developed out so that you can actually have a brand that makes sense and is cohesive. I mean, it worked for Bath and Body Works. That's all I'm saying. That's true, ma'am. <laughs> I did. Uh, well, with that said, I am going to talk a little bit, of, a little bit more about the blands and you know what, what you know, like the, the little funny parts that I think I agree with, and it's about a quarter of this article that actually is probably relevant to me at least. Um, and I think everyone should probably read the article and, and you know 
have their own opinions. Um, but some of the first points that are about the strategy and alignment, I really don't see as a bland identifier. Um, but I do think some of the other other um, points are actually pretty funny. Um, so the first focus is the name. You know, blands often rely on various naming tropes um, and then they emerge over and over again. And so this is pulled from the article, characters, either calculatedly generic, quirky, or na- naive sounding, like Judy, Floyd, Henry, Billy, Maud, or studiously cool, like Warby Parker, which derives from two Jack Kerouac char- characters. Um, and help me out here, Amanda. Do you know what this? how to pronounce this? Portmanteaus? Portmanteaus, which is like... A portmanteau is when you take two words and combine them together, like um, the Dandy Warhol. So you take two different independent ideas and connect them into one. I can't believe you did the Dandy Warhols. That's hilarious. I don't know. I always think of that one because I also then think of their their arch enemies, the Brian Jones Massacre. And so they're both portmanteaus. That is hilarious. (laughs) Well... The examples here for the Blands, I can't believe you came with the Dandy Warhols. That is so funny. Um, Hungry hungry Root, Babble Bar, Tracksmith, True Brain, Class Pass, Plate Joy. So it's it's these two words that are kind of like stuck together. None of these are as good as the Dandy Warhols. (laughs) None of them. Also, the Dandy Warhols, I really, really love the Dandy Warhols. Me too, me too. And I guess, I mean, if you want to talk about trends in like random trends that, you know, you don't see until later, there was a trend in the late 90s of indie bands who were particularly clever or stylish to have a portmanteau as a name. So I'm sure there's a ton more. that I can't think of right now, but those were just mm-hmm. two of them, you know, that top of mind, but it was like a whole thing. I remember reading an article about this in like 2005 or something like looking back on the trends of the nineties. Oh and then it went, it turned into the something, the gossip. Yes. See another trend. <laughs> uh, yeah, all yeah. life is, is a series of trends guys. That's all. There's <laughs> no free will. It's just trends. It's just tons of trends. Um, okay, another name template would be color plus noun, which would be blue apron, mm-hmm. black milk, purple carrot, green chef. Uh, there's monoliths like public goods, ministry of supply, primary goods, and modern citizen. There's <laughs> v- vowellessness. Oh, I hate this. Yeah, I hate this. This needs too. to go away because sometimes I'm like, I don't even know what that word is supposed to be. Well, I'm gonna try to say it. <laughs> like I'm, I'm looking okay. at these now, and I'm like, all right, well, here we go. Um, um, remedy. So these are all capitals: R M D Y. Movement: M V M T. Delisted: D S. I think that's distilled. Distilled. Thank you. I was like, that doesn't sound Isn't right. Isn't it? I mean, what, this is one that I, I get confused by every single time I see it. So it's a What's, bad brand name. <laughs> and I'm guessing human is H-V-M-N. Oh, that's even worse. With- <laughs> God. Um, trunk, T-R-N-K, and mindful, which is M-N-D-F-L. Hate and it, it. Hate, hate it all. Just hate it. Just, just a no for Amanda. It's a very yeah. kind of masculine, also word when when it's all capitalized, and also when when people capitalize words, you know, it seems like you're shouting. It's yeah, like, it's a really, yeah. you know, aggressive word when it's like all capitalized. <laughs> 
<laughs> so ampersands is another one. So tuft and needle, Frank and Oak, oh. <laughs> Hook and Albert, Loom and Leaf, you know. Um, and then the last one is yeah. Quirk, which is like lemonade insurance and kangaroo home security. And I think that this is actually really hilarious that they broke that down and really like pulled out all of like the um the recipes for a name. Uh, you know, and naming is a really is really tricky and it's a it's a really tricky science. Um I don't have you ever listened to that the startup podcast? Uh I think in like 2014 it was their one of their first episodes or two episodes. They did this whole huh. podcast um about naming and working with an agency to name Gimlet Media. Um, mm. And the agency that they worked with is Lexicon Branding, whose name Sonos, okay. Impossible, Blackberry, Dasani, Pentium. Um, Someone and- named Dasani? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That was just some random bad idea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like- I would love to go to those meetings. I want to see that deck. Like, yeah. what the hell? <laughs> well, if you're interested, you should listen to this episode. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I guess I'm going to have yeah. to. Um, and, you know, naming is the most difficult because beyond just liking a name, there are like a lot of logistical reasons behind naming some of these kind of obscure words and names. Um, the number one is, you know, registering for a trademark these days is like nearly impossible. So usually has to be Mm -hmm. a super original name. Um, And it's why you kind of see all these like really made up names and words. Uh, The number two is kind of similar. It's your SEO. You know, your name has to stand out and you don't want to compete in Mm -hmm. search ranking listings. Um, So like if you start a sneaker company and you want to call it Runner's Club, try Googling that, you know, you'll see a thousand different um, things that will compete (laughs) with this, this word, this name, you know? Um, same goes for registering for a website, mm-hmm. you know, hence that trend behind other domains than .com becoming really normalized, like de- the department.world or, you know, ties, you know, intentionally blank.us, you know, that's become pretty normal. Originally, mm-hmm. it was maybe I would say 10 years ago, you if you, you had to have a .com, like that really like signified, you know, that, you know, you, you were a professional in your business and, you know, you, you own the .com. But now people are just like, no, you can just use whatever you need to um, and it's okay. And it's actually really hard to get a website these days unless you have a super original name. And then I read this really great article, Amanda, from the Lexicon webpage. And I just wanted to read a little bit of it to you. And it's titled, What White Claw Can Teach Us About Brand Names That Win? <laughs> <laughs> Can we just start with how that name has always been so random to me? It's, you know, I like something yeah. good and straightforward, like Bud Light Seltzer. You do. <laughs> Can we get that Bud Light Seltzer money? Like, I'm ready. <laughs> well, the article talks more about actually those other names out there too. So this is only okay. like an excerpt from it. Mm-hmm. Um Okay. So just last year in 2019, Instagram and Twitter became flooded with posts and hashtags about a low-carb, gluten-free alternative to beer. White Claw became an instant internet sensation and a source of conversation within pop culture, with consumers frequently posting with the the beverage and posting phrases such as White Claw Summer and White Claw Weekends. White Claw became a trending topic on social media and a household name among millennial men and women almost overnight. 
So launched in 2016 by the founder of Mike's Hard Lemonade, which I did not know, uh, White Claw <laughs> has the highest brand awareness and loyalty as measured through repeat purchases within the spiked seltzer category to date. Within three years, the brand experienced explosive growth, selling 29.1 million cases and claiming 58 percent market share, a performance record in almost any category. That's crazy. It's not even the best one, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda disagrees with your choice of spiked seltzer. I will say, though, that, I mean, White Claw, I'm sure you're going to go into this, yeah. has become the Kleenex of hard seltzer, right? Like, you're just like, oh, get some White Claw. You know, <laughs> that doesn't mean you're going to come home with White Claw, but like, it's the idea of it. Oh, you know, I like, see. Bring something like a White Claw. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Not that you have to buy as much White Claw as Kleenex, although I would argue in my house, we're probably buying way more boozy seltzer than Kleenex. So that's <laughs> not that's to humble true. brag. That's actually, that's hilarious that you are bringing that up because I, I wasn't going to bring that up, but I think that's a really funny way of, and a really great way of, of, of talking about it. You're right. It's like, just, oh, grab some White Claw, which is basically, you know, spike seltzer. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they go in a little bit more into um, naming for broad appeal is a winning strategy, they say. So like all spike seltzers, White Claws registered as a healthier alternative to beer. However, the brand name does not explicitly state that fact, allowing the company to capture and penetrate a broader consumer audience. Whereas the name Skinny Girl Margarita appeals to health-conscious women, nothing in the name White Claw itself alludes to a low-calorie option. Thus, the brand does not isolate itself from potential consumers. Rather, the name invites consumers who simply want a new alcoholic beverage concept and those who long for a healthier option to consume without hesitation. One major reason for the brand's success is its name. While many might describe White Claw as an odd name, it represents a truly unique idea, which is fundamental to success in today's digital economy. Unlike so many product names, White Claw is not descriptive. It does not try to suggest or a point of difference or a benefit. Rather, it concentrates on expressing a distinctive personality and a provocative idea. By its very nature, White Claw communicates that it is not like the other guys, thus creating a new reference point and gaining early awareness, interest, and most important, early share. While many other spiked seltzer brands names names skew feminine white claws brand name is gender neutral it does not skew in one direction which further allows the brand to penetrate the entirety of the millennial market uh not just the female or male market individually as a result white claws consumers are nearly evenly split with women consisting of 53 percent and men making up 47 percent of their consumers when brand names uh, are successful, they become embedded in the minds of consumers, and in this case, in popular culture, which is kind of what you're referring to, Amanda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the brand does explain the name that it takes its inspiration from the legend of the White Claw Wave. With- That's nonsense. <laughs> Wait, no, it gets better. It gets better. When three perfect crests come together, it creates a moment of pure refreshment. Oh, oh I hate that. <laughs> and this article does, you know, if, if you're interested, it does talk a little bit more about the other brands, you know, the other spike seltzers that were out there, the ones that were even out there beforehand that were really descriptive, you know, and then the ones that came mm-hmm. after and just how White Claw continues to maintain its market share, Um I think probably as a, like an early originator also. Anyway, so um, 
jumping back into Bland's, uh, once the name is established, that name becomes the logo itself. Gone are the Starbucks mermaids or McDonald's double arches. Throwing out the rule book and ditching that logo, fonts and typefaces, sans serif, if you please, became the stars. So bland logos are confident but cute, utilizing an array of tweaks and twists to provoke the all-important, quote-unquote, smile in the mind. So the the logos themselves have a connotation of like a happiness um, that are just kind of evolved from the fonts being, you know, kind of twisted and, and tweaked. So next, Ben Schott says, visually, blands are simple, neutral and flat. The palette is plain and pastel, which is very true, with the occasional vibrant splash. The mood is upbeat and happy or pensive and cool, but never truly real. The dress code is smart casual. Bland people are stock photo attractive, and they run the <laughs> gamut of race, ethnicity, and age, intermingled whenever possible. Although many blands, from fashion to femtech, target women directly, even those that don't tend to skew more feminine or non-binary. Many mainstream blands would likely embrace the pronouns they, them, their. So I understand this a bit, you know, VC back companies don't want to alienate anyone and want to remain as neutral as possible for the sake of acquiring the largest market share. And women are traditionally, you know, slightly larger spenders. Um, And it is a commercial and a safe approach when you're investing, you know, millions of dollars into a brand and a startup. Um, But it does make them particularly generic because they're just as not much of a point of view. Ben also does describe, and, I, and you see this everywhere on almost any of these blands, is that complex products and technical processes are illustrated by cute cartoons or noun project icons, um, you know, which you could kind of see everywhere. And it's a lot of their key selling points are described with little images. Um, and that's actually, that's a, a a pretty American concept as well, pointing out all the best features and then just making a little cartoon <laughs> around it. Like that's kind of- And I'm being like, yeah, there it is. <laughs> there it is. There it is. It's, it's the most comfortable. It's the, it's the cleanest. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all those things. So this article basically abruptly just ends. There's no solution. There's no suggestion. There's no way to move forward. It's basically just like, here's a critique. Run with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, I just wanted to to talk with you, Amanda, on like, you know, how do brands avoid becoming bland casualties? You know, I think yeah. the easiest one, in my opinion, is reducing that minimal branding and trying for more maximal branding and maximalism is trending. And I think we will obviously see that as um, Gen Zers start to grow their market share? I mean, 100%. And you like you brought up a non-bland brand that is so highly successful visually, and that's Starbucks. Like, you don't even mm-hmm. need to know how to read to know that that's a Starbucks <laughs> or that person's drinking a Starbucks. Whereas yeah. with a lot of these blands, I mean, I can't even – I can't even tell them apart sometimes. I'll be like, is that the Razor Company? Like, I, like you know, I have to literally pull up the website to know. And I think – The name is so bland. I know. I feel like yeah. we've reached maximum blanding. And, like, if you want your brand to stand out, you need to go in a different direction. And it doesn't need to be 
full maximalism, but I look at someone like, you know, Starbucks or, I mean, think about like Pepsi, like their logo is kind of iconic too. I mean, even the Budweiser packaging, you know, like pick something that conveys what your brand really is and run with it rather than this like our brand could kind of be anything to anyone. Because I think we are leaving that time behind where customers feel a true connection with a brand that just seems to try to reach everyone, you know, like Mm -hmm. then it doesn't feel special anymore and it doesn't feel genuine. It just feels like trying to cash in. That would be, that's just my opinion. (laughs) I know. I think this is a great opinion. And, you know, I think that some of the brands that are kind of doing really well and growing an audience really quickly are brands like Topicals, you know, mm-hmm. the, with their incredible, really obvious branding. I think Tony's Chocoloni, actually. Totally. That's another one. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with that brand, mm-hmm. you can see a bar from across the room and know it's them. Yeah. And I think that's really, really cool. And I think we are starting to see maximalism or whatever this individualism in terms of branding, yeah. it's starting to come out. Like I'm trying to think, we talked about a brand a few episodes ago that was like, they had like the cherry under eye masks and whatnot. Do you know what brand I'm talking about? Oh, yes. Oh, they're so cute. Um, Squish. Okay. Squish. Squish Beauty. There's a lot of beauty brands that are actually doing really fun Gen Z focused. Anyway, go on. So totally. So Squish is an example of a lot of brands. And I think you're onto something here because skincare is starting to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned topicals, for example. Mm-hmm. These brands are t- going in a totally different direction. It's like a rejection of the status quo in millennial skincare and beauty. Like, you know, uh, Glossier. It's like, fuck that. That's old. Mm-hmm. That's tired. Yep. We're going to bring back in. The- I mean, it is almost kind of like maximalism. Like when I think about squish and how all the photos are sort of soft focus and 70s. It's nostalgia. Yeah, it's nostalgia. It's totally nostalgia. And so I could see that being the next step. I mean, honestly, like that's what I do on Clothes Horse, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that's where we're heading because it is so different than blanding. Mm -hmm. It just feels warmer and more personal. Yeah. Differentiation Mm -hmm. and point of view, Mm -hmm. like – pulling away from the status quo and actually having something to say, either cause, voice, or vision, and potentially partnering with um, a younger, smaller branding agency too. You know, I think that's what's going to get you out of the rut of a bland. Totally. You know, taking a few risks. And I think that's really hard for VCs to back. You know, I know that you just had a, a full pitch session with VCs. Like, I, like it's, really, it's really hard to get the funding unless they think that your brand is going to make millions and millions of dollars. And if if there's any anything that might get in the way of that, like, okay, maybe you're really political or you're really, you've got this, I, I, I don't know. You know, what could potentially deter the millions of customers? And, you know. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's just about trying to sell to as many people as possible. And I think that's not where we are. I think there's more individualism than ever. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I actually do not dislike Blance. I I think that their branding is unoffensive and low key and like, <laughs> yeah, they're kind of generic and boring, but Jesus, like, you know, you've, we knew what, what existed before Blance existed, you know? And I love that they came in and they disrupted the status quo. And of course, minimalism was there. It was happening. It was aspirational. And so that's just what ended up happening. And they just kind of fell into minimalism. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that they've brought some really great things to the world. Um, do you have any favorite Blands or brands that have really turned the tables for you? Well, I mean, one bland that I talk about all mm-hmm. the time is The Ordinary. Yes. I mean, you don't get more bland than that, don't. right? They are like, they're bland for the sake of being bland, you know? It's like tongue in cheek. Yeah. I know, but it's really smart mm-hmm. because it make, it makes them stand out. Whereas a lot of the other skincare blands, which Glossier is yeah. the one that's top of mind, but you know, there's like so many more. The Ordinary still stands out amongst all of them yes. because it is so clinical. It is so minimal. There is yes. nary a millennial pink to be found. <laughs> and so it feels like something that only people yeah. who are really smart would use, right? So I – because I was like, oh, what blands uh-huh. are in my life? And the only other one I could think of okay. – try not to laugh at me. Uh, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but just barely. Uh, Target has a line of food that's pretty new and it's hella bland. Like they went to the same okay. agency. It's called Good and Gather. And I like the aesthetic it. of it. I have to say, like and- you have to look it up. It's like a lowercase g and then the name is okay. Good Ampersand yeah. Gather. It's all the things, right? And uh, I mean, I don't do a lot of grocery shopping at Target. We had to do a little bit more during the pandemic than maybe we would have. And I got really into all of their flavored seltzer. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, the, the branding looks good. It's colorful. It's colorful, but it's a bland. Yeah. So I I guess yeah. maybe that's the next step for it's an, it's an ampersand. Yeah. It's an ampersand. It's got a lowercase g. I mean, it's like all of the things that are bland, but so colorful. I, I think I see some serifs. I see some serifs. There are some serifs. I'm wondering, is this the next step? Because you know evolution. Target, Target mm-hmm. has all the money for all the branding. Mm-hmm. So they're going to bring someone in who's like, you know, a trendsetter, I would think. So mm-hmm. maybe we're going to start seeing some serifs work their way in and some color. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I th- yeah, I think we could definitely see it there. I mean, have you ever seen the Amazon food like generic branding yes the (laughs) lowest quality of like if you've ever seen their hummus it is the (laughs) most depressing hummus you've ever seen you're just like really you put absolutely no effort into this like and it doesn't look cool I do think (laughs) Amazon is interesting because I mean real talk I don't want Jeff Bezos to be mad at me their branding is terrible for everything. It's so ugly. And I feel like they're in it too deep now. They got to just keep going with it. That smile thing. Oh, Oh. just, I hate it all. It looks so dated. And like for being, I would assume the biggest company on the planet or very close to the biggest, why is their branding so bad? Like you could be, you could actually have an agency in house. I mean, I'm sure they have something, but you could like hire some of the best 
the the best people like steal them from your from agencies and like have a full brand package yeah because it's just terrible they all of their branding looks like it's from 2002 it's really bad which is probably when the branding started you know i would love to see them get a refresh even though i don't really care about that brand yeah exactly but but i they they should be doing better (laughs) Like Target, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and I mean, this actually kind of takes us into what you're talking about, Amanda. Yeah. So I am going to talk about the history of generic brands and no-name products, which I would say are the parents or the grandparents of blanding, perhaps mm-hmm. the forefathers, if you will. And I shared some photos with you, Kim. I'm so you seeing can them. See yeah, what I was talking about. Um, so I'm going to set the stage here. Let's picture it. It's 1978. It's East York, <laughs> Ontario, Canada. So I don't know. It's probably kind of cold. People are driving like really enormous cars. Mm-hmm. Lots of gas. Gas guzzlers. So much gas guzzling. Yeah, totally. I had a friend who grew up in northern Minnesota around this time. And he told me that in the winter, they would go grocery shopping and leave their car running while they were shopping. So it's probably some of that going on. Right. And so if you're not super into history, uh, it turns out that the mid to late 70s were terrible. Unemployment was at an all-time high, both in Canada and in the U.S. There was so much inflation. There was an energy crisis. People we're not having a good time. I mean, does this sound familiar to you? Because I feel like that's where I live right now, right? Yeah. People were feeling that squeeze financially. So there was a pretty big grocery store chain in Canada called Loblaw, which I swear has to be the inspiration from for Bob Bob Loblaw's law office or whatever from. Well, yes, the Bob Loblaw's law blog. Yes, exactly. From Arrested Development. This has mm-hmm. to be, right? So Loblaw yes. opened its first no-frills grocery store in this environment. And the gimmick was that nothing in the store had a brand. Although, and I will talk about this repeatedly, one could argue that no-frills was the brand. <laughs> Everything was in plain yellow packaging with a simple sans-serif font spelling out just what was in the package and like a little bit more information. There was no copy. There was no photo of the food. It was very straightforward, very bland. Now, mm-hmm. this was like groundbreaking for this time period. The idea was that at least to customers, that they were paying a lot for branding when they bought brand name food. And to be fair, that was, and you know, it's probably somewhat true. The 60s and the 70s saw a rise for, like for the first time in big name like national brand food brands that you know we take mm-hmm. for granted now and barely buy like Jello, Kraft, mm-hmm. Hellman's mayonnaise, that kind of stuff. That's like really affordable right now. That's really affordable now, but at the time was like luxury, you know, because yeah. Whole Foods didn't exist yet, right? Mm-hmm. So these brands all had like brightly colored packaging, custom fonts, advertising campaigns, taglines, you name it. Now, grocery stores also at the same time offered their own store brand versions of all these foods, and they would sit alongside the national brands. The weird thing about this, because, you know, store brands still sit alongside national brands and grocery stores all everywhere, every single mm-hmm. grocery store. But back then, 
the packaging for the store brand was often incredibly similar. Yes. Maybe just subbing out the specific brand names and slapping on the store name. Like mm-hmm. if you couldn't read, you might struggle to figure out which was Kraft macaroni and cheese versus, you know, Kroger macaroni and cheese. Mm-hmm. And these products would be slightly less expensive than the national brands, but it wasn't 100% about like savings at this point. So No Frills took a stand, which was forget the brand, focus on what's inside, and save lots of money. And once again, this idea of minimalist packaging conveyed a sense of thriftiness, of value, that a savvy shopper might not have a lot of money, but knew that it was what's inside the package that counted. And like I was saying earlier, I would say that the ordinary accomplishes that because it's like, oh, this brand is for people mm-hmm. in the know who are experts about skincare. They're too smart. They don't need fancy packaging to show what they need. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm super smart when I buy products from them. You know, yeah. It works on me. It works on me. There's a great episode of one of my favorite podcasts. It's called 99% Invisible, and it's about design and all the ways it touches our lives. And they have a great episode about the no-frills stores and their quest for minimalist branding, like really nerding out on the design element. And we'll share a link to that in the show notes because it was very enjoyable. I was super excited about it because Dustin and I have been obsessed with that generic brand aesthetic like our whole lives. Like from our first date, we talked about the generic brands Aww. aisle in the store. I think I was on that date. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I might have been. You might have been. <laughs> and I know that we're not the only ones. So it's not surprising that designers and creatives have been working mm-hmm. it back into the world because these the people who are making these decisions are the same age as us and grew up in that same era. So I'm going to jump in now and say that the irony of blanding being such a big deal for more premium brands now is not lost on me because minimalism, which was once the sign of thriftiness, is now the aesthetic of the wealthy. Yeah. It's like you can afford to have all that space on your packaging. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So do you know who Ian Savonius is? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, he wrote a great essay and it's it's Kukumaru. I'm going to start by saying that. Okay. Okay. It was a few years ago and it was taking on Apple as par- Apple, you know, like the computer company yeah. as part of this idea of minimalism being an aesthetic owned by the wealthy. The basic premise was poor people can't afford to be minimalist because they need stuff to survive. And hmm. this one excerpt I really liked, the Apple hmm. proposition is a 1960s futurist Zen minimalist throwback lifted from Nordic designers like Pantin and Saarinen, whose functionalism was influenced by movements like DeStyle and Bauhaus. While modernism proposed ways of dealing with the cataclysmic upheaval brought on by industrialism, Apple's proposition is the Western capitalist commercial, freedom, ease, and cool control of one's environment. Because I do think it's really important to say that Apple is kind of the originator of Belanda. Wow. Like when I started to think back to yeah. it, I was like, yeah. Totally. Totally. (laughs) One thing that Apple has going for it is they have their secondary mark, which is literally an Apple. Mm -hmm. And once again, you see that across the room and you're like, oh, that person has a Mac, right? Mm -hmm. So they still have taken it to a smarter level. Now, I had to laugh at this essay a little bit, like the idea of Apple being the most upsetting thing in the world right now when there are tons of other tech companies like Amazon, Google, and Facebook that are becoming way more evil. (laughs) 
Yes. Then, but, yes. Then Apple. Yeah. Like Apple seems like, oh, whatever. Let them alone. You know? mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> but you know, like I will buy all of their products at their inflated prices. And not yeah, complain. totally. That are going to need a new dongle every fucking <laughs> yes, time. Right. A new dongle. I mean, <laughs> I was reading this article, his essay today, and I was like, he doesn't talk about the dongles enough because <laughs> that's what really pushes me over the edge. <laughs> but I do have to agree with like what he's saying here once again, which is this idea of minimalism being for the wealthy because the rest of us need clutter to survive. And this brings me to an idea that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I had a conversation with our friend Sherry about it. I talked about it on Mm -hmm. Clothes Horse. It's the idea of taste being good or bad, that these tastemakers – and which I also hate that term, even though I've had jobs where literally that was part of the job description. I had to be a Mm -hmm. tastemaker. Tastemakers are always incredibly privileged in terms of looks, finances, and background. They've got connections. They get to determine what is good taste versus bad taste. And ultimately, the things that are adopted by the wealthy, beautiful, famous, and important are good taste, like blanding, for example. And the things that are liked by everyone else are bad taste. So basically, when we talk about taste, what we're really just doing is engaging in a form of more socially acceptable classism. Like Gwyneth Paltrow, right? And like goo. Yeah, totally, totally. It's fascinating. I think this is great. So right now, we think as a society, we all held hands and we said, minimalism mm-hmm. is good taste, but only because the gatekeepers have been have decided that and then like like Kim was talking about, you get all these other VCs basically saying, look, I can't invest in, t- in you unless you have this blanding approach because that's mm-hmm. what's good taste right now. And y- you'll see that in the story of No Frills that eventually this minimalism became bad taste. But when it yeah. arrived in the 70s, it was like, oh my God. <laughs> right? <laughs> so back to No Frills, the grocery store. First off, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the origin of generic brands. And like I said, it's all about the 70s. Canada was a disaster. America was a disaster. In the United States, the unemployment was at 11%, which is real bad. Many middle-class American families could no longer afford to eat those national brands of food. So grocery stores were tasked with how to make the store brands seem more appealing because they just weren't different enough, I guess, you know? And they wanted the store brands to be both appealing and reliable to these people that were accustomed to buying name brand food. So they sort of needed a gimmick, right? One chain in France called Carrefour, which I'm probably totally messing up because I don't speak French. (laughs) Was, was in the process of developing a discount store brand because they were running into the same problem. People just didn't have money. And they had an mm-hmm. idea. Instead of using the bright colors that the name brands used or even like putting their name on the box, like the name of the store, because no one cares, they, did, they were like, we're not going to use slogans. We're not going to use beautiful photos. We're not going to put in all this flowery copy. We're going to make these products completely brandless. Mm-hmm. They would just include the name of the food in black text, on a white background, which mm-hmm. is what you and I know of as generic food, right? Because that was like – that yes. came over to the United States. They had tremendous success with this minimalist approach because it was like a new gimmick. Nothing uh-huh. in the grocery store looked like that. And so it was almost like, yes, it was cheaper, but more importantly, it was appealing because it was so mm-hmm. unique. 
And it was genius marketing because it once again, it applied to the customers that they were paying in the past a premium for brand name packaging. But now they had wised up and they were going to be smarter and buy the generic version. So Dave Nickel was the owner of that Canadian store chain, Loblaw, which I can't say without laughing. I, I know. Bob Loblaw's Loblaw. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Loblaw, the store, was really also struggling during this economic downturn of the mid to late 70s because their customers just didn't have money to spend on food. They saw what that French grocery store chain, Carrefour, was doing with packaging because he was like a globetrotter. He traveled all around the world. He was a legendary foodie. Like this guy, he had a great eye for everything and he was really smart about branding. He saw this and he wanted to adapt it for a Canadian audience, but he wanted this new brand, which the name he came up with was No Frills, to be a brand with a capital B. So while the French people were like, we're just creating this new packaging that is brandless. Dave Nickel wanted it to be a brand. While the brand wasn't on the packaging, you would look at it and you would think of it as a brand. So he wanted it to have a very identifiable and iconic look and feel. So he brought in legendary Canadian graphic designer Don Watt, who went on to design all kinds of crazy grocery industry stuff that mm. you've probably seen. He created the iconic yellow color, which is like a big, bright, artificial banana kind of color. I guess that's how I would describe it. And he paired it with the strikingly minimalist Helvetica font, which has been having a moment for the past 10 years. So while customers maybe looked at that stuff and they were like, oh, I'm getting this hot deal because I'm not paying for a brand, they were actually getting a brand. Like, let's be real. They brought in a hot shot graphic designer. And when you look at pictures yeah. of these stores, it's like stunning. It looks like an art installation because everything is yellow down every single aisle. It's like in just different shapes of packaging with that black print. It looks so good. I love a monochromatic situation. So No Frills performed really well. And this concept of generic groceries spread across the country, both Canada and the United States. And it thrived into the early 80s. And I have very, very early, very hazy memories of there would always be one aisle in the grocery store in our town that was where all the black and mm-hmm. white stuff was, right? We had we had roundies. <laughs> we had round roundies was was our brand. And like I had I had a couple friends who, you know, weren't quite as a was weren't quite as fortunate, I guess you could say. And, you know, their their parents would buy the roundies brand. And I remember just being really disappointed whenever they bought they brought out like the roundies snacks. Uh, because <laughs> even they though it was good. kind of the same. But they weren't as <laughs> yeah, good. I they, swear they to God. I, I swear to God. So they were not. They were not. It kind of, you know, these generic brands were going strong for the rest of the 70s and the very early part of the 80s. But then it kind of became not a good look. Let's say that. So mm-hmm. I would say to say that I grew up working class would be an overstatement of our financial situation. Like I always said, I wasn't even classy enough to be working class. But even my family, who I'm going to tell you, we did a lot of our shopping at the food outlet that sold dented cans and shipments that fell off the truck. We wouldn't even buy generic products because it was too embarrassing. And whether it was true or not, we definitely had the belief that the food wasn't as good. Remember Roseanne? Roseanne would talk about it and she would like replace, she'd buy the generic 
like cereal and, <laughs> and pour it into the, the brand name boxes. There and her go. kids wouldn't know. And it was always really embarrassing. I mean, to be honest, like the cereals, for example, that we ate as a kid, you could have subbed out for generic and I would not have. Yeah, noticed. you like could. Rice Krispies, yep. cornflakes, like who mm-hmm. cares, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the 80s, much like what possibly the next decade that we're about to live through is going to be like, represented a huge cultural shift into a worship of excess and wealth. We're talking dynasty, Dallas, mm. designer jeans, cocaine. My grandmother, <laughs> who had a successful business of her own, had a Buick Park Avenue that was cranberry colored. Oh my God, colored. we had one. What? Okay. No way. Okay. It was cranberry colored mm-hmm. and all of the upholstery inside was burgundy velvet with gold yep. trim. And you know what? This wasn't tacky. People were like, wow. No. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the era that we have shifted into, right? Mm-hmm. And so generic products with their simple, minimalist, once totally striking and cool branding just seemed cheap and poor and too basic. And, you know, mm-hmm. people began to believe the food wasn't as good. There were rumors that the food was actually the the products that were rejected by the big brands. So it'd be like, oh, we've got this bad batch of Cheerios. Send it over to the generic place. Like that's what people really believe. Yeah. Yeah. But in fact, all marketing and all branding for every aspect of every industry took a total 180 in this period. So logos got more elaborate. We're talking frills, cursive, packaging mm-hmm. got fancier. Beauty products started adding a lot of gold trim and baubles. There's a lot more foil and embossing in the packaging. And groceries had to follow that trend. So store brands switched to more elaborate packaging. So faux brands, like I feel like you've encountered this because I think it's a Midwestern grocery store generic brand, President's Choice. Yep, yep. You're familiar mm-hmm. with that one. So President's Choice emerged. It sounded a lot fancier. I President's can picture, Choice. I know, I know. I can picture it, it like it had like a cursive like font. King's Feast. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's so random. Mm-hmm. Boxes started showing these elaborate serving suggestions, which you'll still see every once in a while in like a box of crackers or something, you know, where it's mm-hmm. like the crackers on a table with some That's cheese true. and a dip and maybe there'd be a candle in the background, you know, I'll like. It'd be like cheese whiz on top with yeah, like a little <laughs> exactly, like, like parsley. Exactly. Yeah. Like I'm mm-hmm. not saying that the food got better, <laughs> but the branding got a lot more elaborate. Mm-hmm. And then there would be all these, all this like flowery copy, like sometimes I I do, I will say, I like to just read a package, the copy on the package that you never think about. Because in general, I buy something, I might look at the ingredients, I'm going to look at the nutritional information, that's it. I would urge you to go to your cabinet and start reading the copy on this packaging because it's hilarious and unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. So No Frills, the grocery store company, and I suppose Loblaw, <laughs> just wanted to say Loblaw again, <laughs> went through kind of a dark time. But ironically, as we've been talking about, we're back in an era where minimalism seems more premium, more aspirational, more expensive, and conversely, elaborate, flourishy packaging seems cheap and undesirable, although I think it's making a comeback. Mm -hmm. So No Frills has been on a comeback for the past few years. They've been taking their packaging concept of like the yellow 
with the minimalist font and putting it in public places, like on a subway booth, like this is a subway booth, that kind of stuff. And people have been loving it. It's been going viral. And to be honest, this whole idea of simple off-brand shopping has been gaining momentum for a long time. Case in point, Trader Joe's. Now, do I think that Trader Joe's packaging is good? No, I hate it, actually. It infuriates me. But it does always seem in line with their brand, which is totally not blanding. Um, So kudos to them for sticking strong with that. But there are also other places like Aldi, uh, Lidl, which is like another European grocery that's been moving into the United States. And then, like I said, even Target's Good and Gather brand line embodies that idea. And I can go to Target now and see that more and more of their grocery section is turning into this Good and Gather line and less and less uh, uh, you know, mm. national brands. And I think that that is part of this whole trend back into like simplicity in terms mm-hmm. of grocery shopping. So – Will this all go out of style after the pandemic? Like, because right now, thriftiness is more important than ever, but we know that minimalism isn't associated with thriftiness anymore. Right. But we also see a lot of backlash against influencers flaunting their wealth on social media. I mean, like, how about Kim Kardashian's ridiculous birthday party on a private island? (laughs) Or like... I don't know. I can't keep track of all the Kardashians is is and their comings and goings, but the one sent her like five-year-old to school in like a $10,000 backpack. I mean, that's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> when people are being evicted, yeah, you know? exactly. So there seems to be, and who knows, who knows, there seems to be a shift into buying less and having a simpler lifestyle, adopting simple luxuries over luxury products. So I'm kind of wondering what's going to be next. Do you know anything about the backstory of Muji? Because Muji was developed as a brandless line. Yes. I mean, Muji is so quintessentially Japanese mm-hmm. in that way. Uh, that aesthetic is everywhere in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's like funny because I think here in the United States, we think of Muji as sort of exotic. Yeah. And you know, and the minimalism element of it is less a style statement and more really about functionality, which I can appreciate. In Japan, Muji is everywhere. Like some convenience stores have a Muji section. So it's just, it's just like the brand. And it's, it's like a brandless brand there, I guess I would say. It's just, it is kind of like the generic brand of Japan. Like the first time I went It's supposed to be, yeah. Yeah. The first time I went into, um, Gosh, I think it's the oh, – I can't remember. There's one specific convenience store chain. Every location has a Muji aisle. And I was like, whoa. Not 7-Eleven? It's not 7-Eleven, no. But I was like, oh, like what? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, 7-Eleven is interesting in Japan because it's also just a huge brand there. And it's huge. not – Huge. It's amazing. And it's not the way we think of it here. Like if I told you that tonight I ate dinner from – 7-Eleven, you would be concerned, right? <laughs> totally. But in Japan, it'd be like, oh, cool. Yeah. What'd you get? I mean, and- Anthony Anthony Bourdain talks about the oh. 7-Eleven sandwiches. And when I go there, like those egg salad sandwiches are just phenomenal. Even Konbi out here, is, it's like this, inc- this huge like Japanese sandwich place that's like written uh, up in every single food blog is like the most 
you know, exciting thing to happen. And really it's just based on 7-Eleven sandwiches. Oh, totally. I mean, I will say every time I go to Japan, the first thing I do is go to 7-Eleven and get one of those sandwiches. And I yep. eat one like every day. And Me too. I've been trying to perfect my version of it back Ooh. here at home. Do you get the Kewpie? You got to have the Kewpie. I mean, mm-hmm. if if you make it without that, it's, it's not going to work out. But it's all about like – how you mash up mm-hmm. the, the eggs. It's like there's a lot of people writing different think pieces about how to make the sandwich. Yes. But I I think that that's also interesting too, that like 7-Eleven is a desirable brand there. Mm-hmm. But here, like like I said, if I ate dinner at 7-Eleven, it's it trash. I'm, I'm having uh-huh. a hard time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not trash. It's just, yeah, it's a convenience store and convenience stores here have – I think that's actually an opportunity is to make convenience stores cooler. Totally. Because like in in Japan, the konbini is where you go to get your dinner, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not like you're eating weird nachos. Like mm-hmm. it's healthy. It's fresh. There's tons and tons of options. And we don't have anything like that here. Because the other thing about 7-Eleven that does remain consistent in Japan is that it's very affordable. Mm-hmm. You can go it in is, there with a couple right. bucks and eat like a king. Yeah. So well, I mean, in in New York, in Brooklyn, and that's one of the things I miss here in LA is that we always had these bodegas and they mm-hmm. some of them would be luxury, like more lux luxe bodegas where you could get all like the luxury snacks and things like that. But you can also get like sandwiches and like all this amazing stuff. It's like like if someone, let's say a VC backed someone with a really great design sense, made convenience cool, they would make a killing. Totally. Here in America. Totally. With a huge focus on takeout food. Yes. Yes, on prepared foods. Yes. And like something different because, Mm -hmm. I mean, here on the East Coast, the options are kind of even limited. There's a lot of that like fast casual concept. So like you go to Sweet Greens or Chipotle, those kinds of places. They're not that convenient to me. And – they get kind of surprisingly spendy for what they are. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a whole so much opportunity there, especially now mm-hmm. more than ever, as people, you know, people are broke. It's yeah. a really hard time. Um, you're like one of the few people I know with a job, Kim. <laughs> oh, oh gosh. I know. And I, and I feel like I don't think about that enough. And I, I think I should, you know, praise my lucky stars. That I, I still do have a job. Um, but, you know, just also just kind of thinking a little bit about this minimalism and this, um, the genericness um, that was happening in the 70s and 80s and how it went out of style and then how it came back in style really came back kind of within the fashion industry when like Helmut Lang mm-hmm. popularized that look again, like embraced it. And it was, you know, it was like counterculture. It was it, it. It's what stood out, and it was really cool and really striking. And it happened like actually, the, he like embraced it. I think actually in '86, mm-hmm. and then in the '90s he became really popular, you know. And then it it kind of had a comeback again in the aughts, and um, you know, Margiela, and then all these like fashion brands, you know, all just jumped on board of in following with Helmet Lang, and Helmet Lang was like the identifier of cool. And so just Mm -hmm. following those tricks of at least just visual branding and fonts and logos. And, you know, I think it was just, I think it's Helvetica he does was just Mm -hmm. basic, the purest of the basic like seventies font. Totally. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. And building that in. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see like, 
thinking about, because I think the thing that we come back to time and time again on here is how cyclical it all is and how these Mm -hmm. things, one thing leads to the next thing. Like history has proven that kind of time and time again. So repeats itself. Yeah. It's kind of insane. And like maybe Mm -hmm. in certain aspects, the cycles of trends have sped up, like, especially when we talk about fashion, but it seems Mm -hmm. that in design, they may have even slowed down a bit because like you were saying, We've been doing this blending for like 10 years, you know? So So (laughs) it'll be kind of interesting to see what comes next. And I do think it's going to be this nostalgic maximalism. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what I, that's what I see coming. And, you know, it's, it's starting to seep through now. Like, I think, I mean, I'm sure you'll agree with me on this. The first, when branding, when blending began to emerge, you would see it and you would be like, wow, that brand must be cool, right? It was really eye-catching. Now we're like, yawn. But that's how I feel Mm -hmm. when I see these new brands with their like nostalgic branding. I'm like, ooh, they must be really flashy. Yeah, yeah. It feels so fresh to me. So it's like embracing the zeitgeist of nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. So my hope stands out. My hope is that we will go in that direction, but not in the gross consumerism of the '80s. You know, Mm -hmm. like I don't want like big things of Aquanet to come back and all of that. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. With a sustainable, mindful approach. Yeah, yeah. Like a new modern approach to maximalism, Mm -hmm. I guess. Ooh, imagine all the mod logos that are going to come out. Ah, I mean, I think it's exciting. I spend a lot of time just looking at different fonts. Like there's a lot of different websites out there that'll show you fonts through the history and all of their uses over time. And I love looking at that era of graphic design. If you had shown it to me 10 years ago, I'd be like, ugh. But now (laughs) it feels like a palate cleanser. I mean, I do think that that there is like has been a trend at least for the past you know ten or fifteen years where fonts and typography has been growing as like a really interesting topic and things that that people are like stands of you know yeah like yeah just fonts and typography is just like a a crazy trend. It's true. Yeah. I do. I do think the average consumer now is a lot more knowledgeable about design, and maybe mm-hmm. that's because of the internet. Maybe it's because of all the TV shows about such things, you know, because like everybody thinks they're a decorator now or can flip houses or, you know, now everybody thinks they can bake bread and are home chef. And, you know, we all think we're like graphic designers and like things like Squarespace let you believe that anyone can build a website, which is true. But, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that. I don't want to devalue the work of people. Totally. That actually makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah, where everything's DIY, so you can like DIY your own website and branding and logos because Business it's just cards. Harmful. Yeah, you can do it yeah. all. You can do it all. Well, you did last time talk about how you wanted to touch base on, you know, how we were faring. I'm a mess. I don't know. You're <laughs> well. The week of election, I started oh, off yes. really strong because unfortunately, that's the last time we recorded is before the election. Remember, and yeah, we were so stressed. So stressed. And I was doing pretty good. I was still, you know, doing my bike ride every day. And it was helping me deal with stress, I think. But then election day came. I I did a ride that day. The next day, I did not ride for like four days because I felt like I just should be lying in the fetal position. <laughs> it was like Right. You couldn't function. Yeah. I couldn't function. I did I did not want to eat vegetables. 
Uh, at one point, we ate a that's cake. Okay. <laughs> yes, that's amazing. So I'm trying to get back on track now because, like you talked about at the top of the show, I feel a lot less anxious right now, which is crazy because, like, COVID is blowing up. But I feel like at least someday Donald Trump will go away, even if it's just to prison. Yeah, even if it's just to the back of a history book as a blurb of an, of an accent. <laughs> imagine learning, imagine learning about Donald Trump in school. I mean, you are just going to be like, what <laughs> dummies? America was such... <laughs> I know. Such a bunch dummies. of dummies, Okay. I, I'm like, embarrassed. Hindsight's you know, 2020. Remember how everybody was like really embarrassed by George yeah. W. Bush? And like I remember specifically being in Buenos Aires in a hostel arguing with a bunch of Irish guys about how fucking stupid Americans were for electing George W. Bush. Oh and now we all look back on him fondly as just, Fond. a, just a reasonable, <laughs> normal dude. Miss him. A mediocre dude, uh-huh. maybe. But yeah, you know, not yep. totally mortifying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how about you? Have you been staying on track? I mean, I, you know, I, <laughs> I have been, you know, working out most every day. I do kind of like a little bit less of a workout routine and I don't walk every day because it gets so dark and... You know, mm-hmm. I just I know. don't really yeah. know what's happening out there. And I don't know if that's an excuse for myself. I also don't really want to be walking in the dark. Um, no, and your neighborhood is dark at night. Yeah. Yeah. You and know, like you don't, you shouldn't be out there. Not always the safest. So, you know, um, but I have been focusing on more cooking, like I said, and I did do what I had recommended um, in our uh, listicle. Or our mm-hmm. what, what we what I call it a uh, uh, list cast about you know things <laughs> and you know I actually looked through a cookbook that I was gifted by one of my sisters and I am going to start cooking from that cookbook and it looks fantastic it's the Tartine cookbook and <gasps> oh I have that one yeah. it's really good it's yeah it's amazing I just I do that thing where I just like you know you, you collect these cookbooks and you just don't use them and I'm like that's so stupid so um I kind of flipped through this cookbook this weekend and I have dog-eared some um some recipes that I'm really excited to start progressing with so yeah that's kind of that's kind of my thing cool. yeah cool. yeah cool well I'm glad when we come back for our next episode, I'm going to be back on track. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Yeah, this one's actually such a fun one. I mean, I know I say that about all of them, but this one was super interesting to get in and educational. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll be back next week. I don't know yet what we're going to talk about, but when we stop recording, we're going to talk yeah, about we'll that. Figure that one out. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye. Bye.